hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. This is Rumble Strip. I'm Erica Heilman. I said in the last show that I am working on a, a complex show that's taking a long time. I am closing on it. I am almost there. But I heard recently that Peter Dunning died. He's a farmer that I interviewed a um, number of years ago. So I want to play this story again. He was an extraordinary man. So here's Hell Farm with Peter Dunning. Thanks for listening. I was a slave here. This has been my existence for 40 years. And uh, I can't imagine not being here. I don't know. I say I'm up here. I'm cut off. And I like it. <laughs> People say, well, what are you going to do now? Now that I'm not farming. I don't know. Peter Dunning's farm is a Vermont hill farm. 136 acres of forest and orchards and wet spots and steep, rocky pasture picked over by farmers for hundreds of years. The kind of place that does not lend itself to the industrial production of anything. Instead, it lends itself to the production of everything. Peter has farmed here mostly alone for nearly 40 years. Wives have come and gone, children have come and gone, and now he's getting done. The animals are gone, and the farm is growing up around him. Here's Peter Dunning. We were the first people to look at the farm, just accidentally. And uh, the people who had the farm before me, they got old, this is what happens, and the only thing they did was they sold the hay. They finally didn't even have animals. At one time, when they first started, it was a small dairy farm. And then the bulk tank law came in. They, they weren't allowed to put it in milk, 10-gallon milk cans. But they, they just finally let all this land overgrow. And uh, I drove up in here and... It was nothing like you see. I mean, it was all linoleum and wallpaper and a hot, hot room with a TV going. And um, I had a glass of water and I went down in the cellar. I said, do you have a cellar? And they had a beautiful cellar to store food. I took a walk. I said, let's buy it. And we bought it right then and there. I'd grown up on a farm for whatever that was worth. I was used to animals and and uh, dairy cows and and then you know there was a big cultural change, and I really got into uh, the back to the land movement, and I I was a Scott Nearing admirer, and my other hero is Wendell Berry. So it was back to the land, and this was a perfect place. And I I just wanted to get out of the system. I didn't want to just go to work and do a meaningless job, make money, and hand it over to somebody for wood and food and cars and God knows what. <laughs> 
and the diversity is what spoke to me. Uh, as many different kinds of of animals, of plants that occupy me and the farm in as many diverse ways and time of the year as possible. So you've got sheepdogs and sheep, and then you've got cows and pigs, chickens. God, millions and millions of chickens. I can't tell you how many chickens. we. My, my wife and I slaughtered 25 chickens every Friday that we processed right here, put in cold water, and sold at the farmer's market the next day. God, I mean, I sold everything down there. I sold honey. I even sold black walnuts. I could take a sheep out of the barn, shoot it in the head, hang it, gut it, cut it up in my kitchen, cook it at the farmer's market, and sell lamb shish kebabs that no inspector had ever even heard of. <laughs> I, I made a living at that. I'd make three, four, five thousand dollars a year doing sheepdog demonstrations and lamb, lamb shish kebab cookouts. And then more and more restrictions came in. And then you had to have a meat inspector at the, had to be a federally inspected slaughterhouse. And then the label had to be, I didn't even have a label. I mean, I just wrote, you know, lamb chops. Now you have to have, you know, the weight and when it was slaughtered and where and I, I never was much of a, of a cooperator. I know there was a time when my ex-wife, I didn't, she, she wanted kids and I didn't want any more. And she called me a chicken. <laughs> and I was right. I said, no, you're going to take him away and hurt me. And that's just what happened. <laughs> but I started out as an orphan. So that's the part that's always forgotten in this whole thing of the whole attachment to place of needing a place. When I was born, my mother was there. And then she died. And I went into the foster home for money. <laughs> Fortunately, I was adopted when I was six, almost almost seven. But I'd spent seven years in a foster home. And you know, they didn't give a shit about anything, you know, except for that weekly or monthly check, whatever they got. So this was important to me, the whole concept of birth and uh, taking care of life and and having a, a place to support life. That, that, that was it. What is death, what's the role of death on a farm? I mean, that's all it is, is life and death. It's one or the other. I mean, you're either being born or you're dying. And and uh, I don't know. It, was, it wasn't hard for me to, to deal with. That's all I can say. It was, uh, there were millions of dead sheep stories. Uh, what's nice about raising border collies is you could just feed the dead lambs to the border collies. And you could feed the dead border collies to the pigs. So it was always a full circle there. 
Um, well, I remember that one of the first animals I ever shot was my dog, uh, uh, who was not a border collie. It was a, a German Shepherd mix that came to the farm with us when we bought it. And my son woke me up in the morning, whose bedroom was on the barn side of the house, and said, Clary, the dog, had been out in the sheep field and was killing sheep. And she was really my son's dog. We'd given him, given her to him and as a little puppy. And the border collies would go in with the sheep, which is where I wanted them to be. And the German Shepherd would be running around the woven wire on the outside of the fence, wanting to get in. Uh, and obviously, you couldn't have two kinds of dogs with two different purposes in the same place. And I finally, when she got into the sheep, I just took her up on the hill. I had a rope around her neck. I tied her to a tree, which I'm glad I did because I shot her in the head. And she instinctively in death lunged towards my throat. And I was glad I had tied her up. And it was my son's birthday, and he was up having a birthday party while I was down in the woods. <laughs> he was playing pin the wheel or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, the symbolism was a little much. <laughs> I was alcoholic the whole time. The whole time of? of on this farm. Uh, I have an orchard. I made hard, I have an apple press. I made hard cider. And because I worked so hard and ate so well and was so healthy, uh, I didn't, it didn't bring me down. I mean, not till the very end. I still, I mean, for a while, I had nine or ten pigs that were just outside. I had a cat. I had a pig, Wilma, who just went for walks with me. She'd follow me around. We walked down the road to the mail. She'd follow me along. Um, no, pigs are easy, very personable, and they're very hard. I remember the first pig I killed. It was it was in that little black shed over there, and uh, it was it was a little hard. Yeah. I remember I was out there one night and and I had pigs being born and the, the sow was eating each one of them as they came out because they she was terrified. It was about two o'clock in the morning in the middle of winter and I was out there in my in my underwear with barn boots on and trying to separate these baby pigs that hit the ground and run from the time they capable of moving and trying to save them from the sow who was determined to eat each one. Meanwhile, on the other side of the fence, I had a ewe having triplets. <laughs> that was really hectic. <laughs> this is two or three o'clock in the morning. I got my barn boots on, period. Yeah, there was some other disaster that same night. I can't remember what it was. <laughs> Chimney fire or something. It was awful. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
So you wonder why you drink. <laughs> <laughs> I was aware that this was coming to an end, that I no longer had the market. I'd given up the farmer's market. I no longer, I was getting older and older and older. And uh, I just couldn't keep up with all the work that the farm required. And I, I know I was just drinking more and more to sort of deaden that realization that all that I had worked for was going to be over. And uh, it was Labor Day. It was September 6th. And um, I just was going down the stairs to just, you know, use the bathroom. And uh, I can't tell you how. I just fell and um, hit my head at the bottom. I was up in uh, the VA hospital for the winter. I had brain surgery and lost my right eye and spent the winter off of the farm, you know, either in the hospital or in a, a recovery place. And um, with this eye, I know I can't farm. And... What do I do with 136 acres of farm that I have loved for my whole life that I now physically can't take care of the way I have? I guess dealing with getting old. I'm not 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 being ready for that. I I just I was always so energetic and active and and capable it takes an enormous amount of detail and knowledge of every little aspect of farming that takes a lifetime to accumulate. And it, it's not worth much anymore. Marshall Washer, finally. Uh, so this is uh, Marshall Washer by Hayden Carruth. This is the last verse. No doubt Marshall's sorrow is the same as human sorrow generally, but there is this difference. To live in a doomed city, a doomed nation, a doomed world is desolating, and we are all desolated. But to live on a doomed farm, is worse. It must be worse. There, the exact point of connection, gate of conversion is mind and life. The hilltop farms are going. Bottomland farms, mechanized, are all that survive as more and more developers take over northern Vermont. Values of land increase, taxes increase. Farming is an obsolete vocation while half the world goes hungry. Marshall walks his fields and woods knowing every useful thing about them and knowing his knowledge useless. 
bulldozers, at least of the imagination, are poised to level every knoll, to strip bare every pasture. Or maybe a rich man will buy it for a summer place. Either way, the link of the manure that had seemed eternal is broken. Marshall is not young now, and though I am only six or seven years his junior, I wish somehow I could buy the place merely to assure him that for these few added years it might continue, drought, flood, or depression. But I'm too ignorant, in spite of his teaching. This is more than a technocratic question. I cannot smile his quick, sly, Yankee smile in sorrow, nor harden my eyes with the true granitic resistance that shaped this land. How can I learn the things that are not transmissible? Marshall knows them. He possesses them. The remnant of human worth to admire in this world, and I think to envy. I feel like I really lived my life as thoroughly as one can live. Just completely involved in, in the land with all of it. I mean, the woods, the barns. You know, now I'm my last job, what I'm doing right now is cleaning out the sheep ship from the la- for the last time. And I even sold my manure spreader to my friend and have to borrow it back for this last job. And I'm finding myself really uninterested in doing it. <laughs> uh it's an end of something that I just sort of don't know how to grasp. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen to the farm. As I said, I just can't keep up with it. You can see it's all just overgrowing. That was Peter Dunning of Mile Hill Farm in Springfield, Vermont. Peter read the last verse of a poem called Marshall Washer, a poem by Vermont poet Hayden Carruth. The poem was published in 1978, the same year Peter bought his farm. I first learned about Peter Dunning from an amazing documentary which chronicles Peter's life on the farm in the months leading up to Peter's fall. The film is called Peter and the Farm, and it's wretched and heretical and absolutely beautiful. I really recommend checking it out. Music for this show is The Call and Five Lives from the album Anhinga by David Shulman and Quiet Life Motel. Thank you, Jeff Hewitt, for your help on the show. If you want to make a donation to the show, I'd be really grateful. You will find a green donate button in the top right-hand corner of my website, rumblestripvermont.com. Any amount is great. And if you want to make a comment on iTunes, that would also be great. That helps new listeners find the show. This is Rumble Strip. I'm Erica Heilman. Thanks a lot for listening. <laughs>